You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. When you read through the Psalms, you find that David often talked about the Lord being his rock. And uh, that term, of course, is a metaphor for his safety, his protection. In 1 Samuel 23, and that's what we're going to be looking at, so you may want to turn in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel, we read about such a rock where David and his men found themselves as Saul and his army were moving around the mountain, and uh, Saul was evidently using what we call a, a pincher type of method of attack where he divided his army and part were going around the mountain one way and the other were going around the mountain the other way and they were going to capture David with Saul's intent of course to kill him and uh, had not had it not been for God stepping in at that very moment and uh, bringing news to Saul that the Philistines were making a raid on the land David would have fallen into his hands and at the end of 1 Samuel 23, verse 28, we read, they called that place the Rock of Escape. The Rock of Escape, and that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning, uh, your and my Rock of Escape. One wonders just how many times and places each one of us has found ourselves in that the Lord has stepped in and delivered us being our rock of escape. This morning's chapter in the life of David reminds me of the Apostle Paul's description of the Christian life found in Romans 8, verses 35 through 37. He begins by asking the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he proceeds to answer that, a good question to ask, because of what comes next that comes into David's life as well as your life and my life as well. He says, well, tribulation or distress. What about persecutions? Maybe it's going to be famine or nakedness or peril or even the sword. Maybe you'll be attacked and killed with a sword or whatever weapon. And he goes on, just as it is written, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. There, dear brothers and sisters, is your and my rock. Through him who loved us, we overwhelmingly conquer. And here's Paul's own personal testimony. He says, but we admit this treasure in earthen vessels were clay pots that have the word of God in us that we're sharing so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I've entitled this morning's message, Your Rock of Escape, Persecuted, but Not 
forsaken. With that introduction, let's now look at our text in 1 Samuel 23. We begin with the first five verses, and here David delivers the people of Keilah. That's what we're going to see. David delivers the people of Keilah. In verses 1 and 2 we read, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. So David seeks direction when he hears this news that the people, the inhabitants of Keilah, are being attacked by the Philistines. Like a good shepherd who, out of great concern for his sheep, will do whatever to protect them, David hears about this attack by the Philistines and the people there in the city of Keilah. He's told that the Philistines were even plundering the threshing floors, and evidently those were outside the city. And what that meant was if they were to plunder that, then the people of Keilah would not have the necessary sustenance that they need, but also the Philistines would have that food for the ongoing attack and so forth. Notice, though, that David did not go off half-cocked. He inquires of the Lord whether or not he and his men should go and fight the Philistines, deliver the people of Keilah. We're not told just how he got this information. Now, we know the prophet Gad was with him, and maybe God spoke through Gad to David and said, no, it's okay, go deliver them. Or it might very well be that he received a vision like later on, uh, the Lord gave uh, David's greater or his son Solomon. It's possible he got it that way. But notice verse 3, David's men expressed their fears. It's understandable. Look at verse 3. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Remember now, Saul is out to track David down and capture him and take his life. He has, we're told elsewhere, at least 3,000 soldiers that are in his army. And now they're going to go against the Philistines. And there were a formidable foe of uh, any unnumbered amount of soldiers. And they had the best of modern warfare weaponry of that day. And so you can understand why David's men are afraid. But that's God. God is going to, uh, he's going to use that in David's life as well. Reminds me of Proverbs 24, 6 and in fact, I think there are at least three different Proverbs that say similar things. It says, therefore, by wise guidance, you will wage war. For by wise guidance, you will wage war. In, and in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And so David says, okay, my men are afraid. Maybe I better go back and check for sure. Make sure this is what God wants me to do. And so we read in verse 4, he inquires of the Lord a second time. Verse 4, then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So it reminds me, by the way, of Psalm 27, a good psalm for you and me to quickly, readily be able to get to. Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, also, by the way, written by David. In that psalm, we Read what it says. It says, David says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't that an interesting psalm? So I would have despaired 
See what's going on in my land? He says, I would have despaired. And then he says this, wait. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And then he emphasized the second time, yes, wait for the Lord. Those are good verses for you and me today, considering what we're presently going through, not only in our nation, but also in the world, aren't they? Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. So God gives David and his men a most decisive victory, which was told about in verse 5. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away the, their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. David does what Saul should have done since God had placed him over his flock. Thinking not of the dangers of his own life, he willingly goes and he rescues God's oppressed people who found themselves under the siege of their enemy. And Saul, of course, wouldn't do that. The Philistines most likely had brought oxen and horses and camels. It says that down there in verse 5. It says, uh, so David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines and he led away their livestock. So they probably brought this livestock, that would be the uh, oxen, the horses and camels, for the purpose of carrying away all the spoil they had planned on capturing there in that city of Keilah. But as our text says in verse 5, thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. And verse 4 tells us how he did that. Very important. The Lord had told him, for I, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Listen, dear ones, there is great power when you walk with God. Amen? There is great power. You know, the church will not limp into heaven. It will go triumphantly. Amen? God will see that the church enters heaven triumphantly. And what did he say in the meantime? I like Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Isn't that great? That's a promise from God to you and me. Just as he was promising David great victory here over the Philistines, no matter how many of them there were. And he goes on, he says... Uh, that power is working within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. I like that because we're now in this generation. He says that power is there for you as well. No matter what you're going through, that's an encouragement to you and me this day. The Old Testament commentator Dale Davis gives this insightful comment regarding David's inquiring of the Lord and receiving a direct answer from the Lord. He writes this, he says, a a contemporary believer may say, I don't receive the kind of precise, direct guidance that David did. He says, neither do I. David says, neither do I, because I don't need it. I'm not the chosen king. It does my ego no damage to concede that David's function in salvation history is far more crucial than mine. The fortunes of the kingdom of Yahweh in the world, or this world, rest far more on David's preservation than on mine, Davis writes. What was essential for Yahweh's elect king to have, he received. For me, he says, it's not so essential. 
But in principle, there is no difference between this elect king and myself. What, after all, does Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 mean? Since we have a great high priest, we come to the throne of grace and find grace for help at just the right time. He concludes, knowing whether Saul will come down to Keilah can't be better than that. That's a great quote. We may not get that precise direction like David did, but God says, I am there as your high priest, and when you have a need, you come to me, and I will guide your life. So in verses 1 through 5, David delivers the people of Keilah. That's what we see there. Now in verses 6 through 13, Saul makes plans to destroy both Keilah and David. He makes preservation plans to destroy both Keilah and David. We find in verse 6, the high priest Abiathar joins David at Keilah. Let me read verse 6. Now it came about. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. So verse 6 is like a footnote from the writer of 1 Samuel. And he lets us know that the high priest Abiathar has now fled to Keilah and joined David. That means that David now has both the prophet Gad in his camp, and he now also has the high priest Abiathar in his camp as well. While Saul has been completely forsaken by God. My Though these words are not new in the Old Testament, we hear them as a bold pronouncement when David later admonishes his son Solomon, whom he chose to succeed him on Israel's throne. Listen to David's words of admonishment and his warning to his son Solomon. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. And then these powerful words driven home to Solomon. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. I can't but think that that was in David's mind about God rejecting Saul when he gave those words to his son Solomon, much later on. And when we we meet Saul here in 1 Samuel 23, he has been rejected forever by God. Did you get that? He has been rejected forever by God. What a frightening situation for one to find himself or herself in. It reminds me of the Lord's words over in Luke 12. You may want to write that in your notes. Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. I awakened this morning early, since I don't sleep much anyway, burdened and praying for some loved ones in our family that are one heartbeat from an eternal damnation. Think about being rejected forever by God. Listen to these words by the Lord in Luke 12, 4 and 5. He said to his disciples, I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. 
I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What a frightening thing to say. And Saul has now been forsaken forever by God. Don't let that happen to you. I can't imagine what it would be to be in eternal hell, being in torment, in the worst fears that you could ever, ever experience and imagine, forever and ever and ever. I cannot imagine that. And yet he was forsaken by God, and Jesus warns us, you better fear the one who not only has power to kill, but to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, you fear him. So Saul musters his army to go and destroy both Keilah and David in verses 7 and 8. Think about that, folks. Think about that. These are the people of God, the ones that God placed Saul over to protect and to shepherd. They are not his people, and he knows that. They are God's people. And Saul also knows that God has chosen David to be his next king over his chosen people. And yet, and yet he has purposed to track David down and take his life, and nothing will stop him. My Nothing will stop in his rebellion against God. That's the kind of action that characterizes a person who's been forsaken by God. Oh, how much wickedness and evil is done in the name of the Lord. Let me read verses 7 and 8. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was... I'm sorry, verse 7, back to 7. When when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. Can you imagine that? God, he's delivered him into my hands. For he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. How, how much wickedness and evil is done in the name of the Lord. Paul here says, or Saul, I'm sorry, says, God, wow, he's delivered him into my hands. What I'm doing is the right thing and God is blessing it. This reminds me of Psalm 50, by the way, verses 19 through 22. In Psalm 15, verse 19 through 22, it's God who speaks here. Listen to what he says. You let your mouth loose and evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. Isn't that what the world thinks? Their concept of God? I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. And by the way, that's exactly what's going to happen to Saul in the end, as you know. Saul's words and actions make me think of Jesus' words to his disciples in John 16, verses 1 and 2. 
Even this day we're living in as an example of it around the world. These things, he says, I have spoken to you, his disciples, so that you may be kept from stumbling. He says, you need to know this. You need to process what I'm about to say to you because it's going to happen to you. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. That's the world we live in. That's what Saul was doing. I'm offering service to God. What a blasphemous, God-hating world you and I live in. Just this past week, some of you heard Pope Francis, who is the, quote, Papa to millions of Roman Catholics throughout the world and has the listening ear of millions upon millions of other people, supposedly speaks for God now, without error, just declared that homosexuality and homosexual marriages are acceptable in the sight of God, contrary to the written authoritative word of God that came from God. My this man is right up there with King Saul who said to the Ziphites in 1 Samuel 23, 21, may you be blessed of the Lord. Frightening days we're living in, folks. Very frightening days. Notice that according to verse 10, Saul intended to destroy the city of Keilah along with all the people living in it. And this is the man who dares name the name of God as if to say, God is behind my wicked rebellious actions. And that's exactly what the world does. My. Our world is full of such deceived people. And may I say this, unfortunately, their numbers are going to get much larger as we are at the end of time. Well, in verses 9 through 13, David hears of Saul's plans and seeks God's counsel, and he flees out of Caleb. This time, we're told David resorted to seeking God's will through the high priest who discerned that will using the Urim and the Thummim. That's that black and white stone in his ephod there. And uh, David asked the Lord two questions. He says, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? And will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? In both cases, the Lord answers yes to David. Let me read verses 11 and 12. He says, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Huh. It may seem most ungrateful on the part of the men of Keilah to turn David and his men and surrender them over to Saul after they had just been delivered out of the hand of the Philistines by David and his army. But undoubtedly they remembered all too well what Saul had done at Nob. And think about it, he not only went in and slaughtered all the men, men, women, and children there, but he slaughtered all the priests, including God's high priest. So they knew they weren't exempt, and I imagine that's one reason why they were quick to be willing to deliver him up if indeed it came to that. So David and his army of 600 men fled out of Keilah, 
And by doing so, they actually spared the city and its people as Saul heard about it and chose not to go down and destroy the city and all the inhabitants. Look at verse 13 there. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. So in one way, that's rather a merciful act on David's part to find that out that he was going to come and the people of Keilah would deliver him over. And so therefore he fled there and Saul stopped in his plans to go and destroy the city and kill all the people in it. What does that mean to you and me in your walk with God, my walk with God, to know that God is omniscient? You know, all-knowing? You'll learn that in Sunday school or in the equipping hour under Pastor Stephen later on as he, we study through him the uh, character of God and his character traits. But what does that mean to you and me? It should impress you and me how this account points out God's sovereign omniscience. When we read Jesus' words of what would have taken place in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, if his miracles had taken place in those cities, we again are impressed about him being an omniscient, all-knowing God. I mean, uh, omniscient, all-knowing God. Listen to his words. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. Now listen to his words. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Think about what the Lord said in his omniscience there. That's this omniscient, all-knowing God speaking. And Jesus is saying to the people of Capernaum, if I would have gone down into the city of Sodom instead of sending those two angels, and if I would have done the three and a half years of miracles in their midst that I did here, it would remain unto this day. That's omniscience. By the way, that's my God. Amen? How wonderful to have Him be my God, my rock of escape, if you please, here. What an encouragement to belong to this one true, omniscient, all-knowing God. Well, then David departs into the wilderness as if with Saul daily pursuing him. Verses 14 through 29. Verse 14, by the way, gives us the overview of David's days in the wilderness of Ziph. Let me read that. You can follow in your Bible. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. What a life. You thought your life was hard. Saul, with his 3,000 or so men, sought him every single day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. This is the land of very rugged and rough terrain. It's down by the Dead Sea near Masada. 
Evidently, David knew that land well. But like a pack of wild dogs, Saul and his army pursued David and his men every day, day after day, unendingly. Now, for those two most impactful words. Boy, I've underlined them in my Bible in red. I love them. But God. Well. <laughs> but God. I've often thought of developing and bringing a message over those two words. But God. They're found some 44 times throughout your Bible. And just consider with me briefly now for their occurrences in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, 22 through 24, you can write them down, you need not turn there. But Acts 2, 22 through 24, Peter's sermon on that day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man tested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, there they are. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Another example of that is Ephesians 2. You know it well, but let me read very quickly those verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And by the way, if you're not on that rock or in that rock, Christ, this is a description God gives of you and this is your condition. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the old devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Think about that. There was a point when you and I were children of wrath, God's wrath hanging over our heads. And then those two great words, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Wow. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And why did He do all that? So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I love those two words, but God. Boy, there's a third example of that. That's found in Romans 5, verses 6-8. through 8. It's similar to Ephesians 2. For while we were still helpless, that's right, lost, without hope, without God in the world, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not the self-righteous, not the religious one, but the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while Bill was yet a sinner, Christ died for him. And for you as well, Amen. Let me give a fourth example, and that is found 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. For consider your calling. All right, now he wants us to think about what we were like before we got saved. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Ah, here it is again. But God, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. I am so glad that he chose the foolish things of the world and I was one of those that got chosen to shame the wise. And God has chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things which are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God, and here it is put together like the same but God, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love those two words. Back to our text again. God gives those two words and David or the writer of 1 Samuel writes them down, but God did not deliver him into his hands. And then something wonderful happens here. Jonathan seeks out and encourages David. Jonathan seeks out and encourages David. Verses 15 through 18. Here we see, dear ones, God's heart and his hand at work in David's life. And it's true in your my life as well. We see God's heart and his hand at work in David's life. In verse 14, we're told that God sovereignly protects David. In verse 15, he makes David aware that Saul is still pursuing him in the wilderness zip. And then in 16 through 18, God moves on the heart of Jonathan, on his heart to search out David and come to him so as to encourage him. My Notice the timing of all this. Get it in its context here, okay? Notice the timing. David had just been betrayed by the people of Kela, who, uh, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Philistines, and is about to find himself betrayed by the men of Ziph. But before that happens, God sends him some encouragement by moving on Jonathan's heart to seek him out and to come to him. How did Jonathan encourage David? Let me read verses 16 through 18. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horsh and encouraged him in God. Isn't that good? He encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. How did he encourage him first? By his very presence, dear ones. He made the effort to track him down, find him and go to him. He went out of his way to do that. It's interesting that he could do what his dad could not do, isn't it? (laughs) Saul couldn't find him, but Jonathan had no problem finding him. Secondly, we're told he encouraged him in God. Underline that. He encouraged him in God. How did he do that? 
He reminded David and assured him of what everybody, including Saul, knew, and that is God had anointed him to be the next king over his people Israel. And then thirdly, Jonathan encouraged David by reaffirming the covenant that they had made between each other. This evidently was the last time that David would see Jonathan. But what an impact Jonathan made on David's life. Have you stopped to consider just how valuable and important the ministry of encouragement is, and especially today? Boy, that's an important ministry, dear ones, and every one of us needs to be involved in that ministry. These are very difficult times that we find ourselves in. People are discouraged. They're fearful, aren't they? Even believers. They're fearful. People are isolated and they're lonely. Oh, how we need to encourage one another. Just read the Psalms and what happened to David. He was down at times. He was despondent. He was discouraged. You read those Psalms, you'll note that. But God sent Jonathan to encourage him. Go visit. Go visit. Let God use you to encourage some people. Phone people, encourage them with a word from the Lord. And then also send someone an encouraging note card. All of this is important today in this crazy, mixed up, messed up, dangerous world we're living in. So let God speak to you through His written word. He encouraged him in God. Let, it, let God use you to speak to others through His written word. Notice again verse 16, Jonathan encouraged him in God. Put this in your notes. Romans 15, verses 4 through 6. Romans 15, verses 4 through 6. Here's what it says. For whatever was written in earlier times, that's the Old Testament, isn't it? And whatever the apostles were going to write as well. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance, and boy, that's what's needed today, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. Get that? And the encouragement of the Scriptures. We might have hope in a hopeless world. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, listen, get out there and encourage people and even encourage them to persevere through the written Word of God. Just get out there and do it. You know Hebrews 10, 23-25, but put that in your notes as well. Hebrews 10, 23-25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. May I say this, one thing that Satan has planned to do, whether it be right or wrong with regard to the government, is this, he wants the church to start wavering. And I'm sad to say I think it is. So he says what? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. And then let us consider, give some thoughts, some consideration, how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Did you get that? That's from God. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging, there it is again, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May I, we could preach a long time on that because, dear ones, that day is drawing near. The one people that ought to be aware of that and act on that are the believers that know the Scriptures. Where's my amens? You know it. Listen, we're right on the edge of the Lord breaking into history and coming to take us home. We're the ones that need to act on that. We don't expect the world to do it. We need to act on that. Let's be like Jonathan. Let's go out of our way to encourage each other in the Lord and so much more as we are seeing that day draw near. Not long. He's going to come back. (laughs) Even so, come Lord Jesus. Well, the Ziphites report David's movements to Saul. Verses 19 through 26, let me read that. The Ziphites report David's movements to Saul. No one really needed that encouragement, just as we need it today. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horish, on the hills of Hachala, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Boy, they, they tracked him down. They did what Saul asked. Now then, O king, come down according to all this desire in your heart or soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? How many use God for their wicked ways? May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has, been, who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. He is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'on, in the Arabah, that's the south land, to the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Ma'on. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Ma'on. Saul went on the one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul had his men, and his men, I'm sorry, were surrounding David and his men to seize them. So the Ziphites report David's movement to Saul. We must be reminded that God does not allow, I'm sorry, let me say it again. We must be reminded that God does allow at times our arch enemy to do his damnable work even against us who belong to God. He does allow that at times. We need to understand that. The Ziphites betrayed David into the hands of Saul, who was possessed with tracking him down and ending his life. Perhaps some men of Ziph were trying to curry the king's favor. I kind of wonder what they're going to do after David became their king. Verse 21 Once again, Saul, although forsaken by God, invokes his blessing upon the Ziphites, believing God somehow is blessing his murderous plans against David. He then assigns the men as if to search out David's movements, his hiding places, then report back to him so he can succeed in his plans to capture David. And the Ziphites do that. 
And these events caused David to later write Psalm 54, which you heard read this morning at the beginning of our service. A masculine David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? Verses 24 through 26, Saul now has all the information he needs and is convinced that he will now be able to execute his war plans and finally end David's life. He knows David and his men are on one side of a particular mountain with evidently crags and they can't get off of it. And so he evidently divides his army into two groups, making that pincher move. One group is going around one side of the mountain, and the other is around the other side of the mountains, and it's all over for David. This is it. This is the moment of suspense in your scriptures, if you please. But then God steps in and delivers David out of Saul's hands. Verses 27 through 29. Huh. But a messenger... But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry! Come down! For the Philistines have made a raid on the land! So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the stronghold of En Gedi. And that, by the way, is, I believe, just south of Masada, there by the Dead Sea. In the first part of our chapter, the Philistines are the enemy. Now in the last part of our chapter, they become the Savior. Interesting. That reminds me of Psalm 76.10. For the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. By the way, he'll still do it today as well. Verse 28 tells us they called that place the rock of escape. I am so glad that in this wicked, evil, fallen world that is spinning out of control, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is my rock of escape. And I can say with the Apostle Paul as well that I may be persecuted but not forsaken. Amen? Can you say that? Is the Lord Jesus Christ your rock of escape? No matter the outcome of this election, for example, in this world, a people, and this world of people will not escape, will they? The only ones who are going to escape are those who have placed their faith completely in the Lord Jesus Christ to save them and are building their life upon that rock and not on the sand of this world. Have you done that? I conclude my message by joining the Apostle Paul and giving praise to my God, who is my rock. He says these words, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Heavenly Father, it's good to read the Old Testament the life of David, to see that he had difficult days, hard, frightening days, just like we often have as well. And those precious words, but God. And then those ones that you bring into our life to encourage us like Jonathan. And Father, even 
You get us to that place where we, the only one we can turn and look to is you. And that's true of salvation. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the pincher hold of the enemy is on us. And we live in this wicked, evil, fallen world as well. And we have a fallen nature we're dealing with as well. And we come to that rock of escape. And Lord Jesus Christ, like David said in the Psalms, that rock is you. And we have placed our faith in you. And oh, how many times have you delivered us. And God, I want to say among these dear brothers and sisters of mine, we will all who have put our faith in you and made you our rock of salvation, we will all get safely home to heavy heaven to glory. How unsearchable are your ways. We praise you for that. And Father, we would pray for anyone that might have been heard this message, be it here in the assembly or outside listening by way of live stream or maybe later on, that you are not their rock. And I pray that those words that you yourself said, Lord Jesus Christ, I'll tell you who to fear. Don't just fear the one who can take your life. Fear him who can kill and also has power to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. And may they turn to you in fear and say, oh, save me. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. I'm trusting you and you alone to save me. And you become their rock of offense and deliverance as well and escape. In Jesus' name, amen.